Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, the show with the highest midichlorian count on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and if scheduling has gone to plan, this episode is dropping on Monday, May 4th, 2020. And if that's the case, may the 4th be with you. For this special episode, my guest and I will journey back to the very beginning of the Star Wars saga. In fact, we're going back even further than the first movie. We're talking about Star Wars from the adventures of Luke Skywalker, the novelization of George Lucas's film, which was published in November of 1976, a full six months before the movie hit theaters. To help me with this book report is one half of the Married with Comics podcast. Bear in mind that is a quantitative description, not qualitative. Please welcome Jonathan Schaefer-Hames to the show. What's up, John? <laughs> Hi there, Ryan. It's nice to be back. Yeah, good to have you. You, uh, you were on a previous episode when we did the, uh, the whole uh, oral history of the Disney saga. Um, but since this is our first time having a real kind of conversation about the, the galaxy far, far away, what is your Star Wars origin? How and when did you come to this property? Oh, boy. Well, I, every time I tell this story, everybody will know exactly how old I am now. But <laughs> uh, I saw the first one in the theater, not when it first came out, but when they re-released it in 79, okay. I think it was. So I was about five years old. And I remember getting there late because the very first thing I saw was on um, Princess Leia being led up to Darth Vader. So walking down the aisle, looking up, there was Darth Vader, big as life. And I was just captivated. My mom tells me, tells this story all the time. Anytime I mention Star Wars is that I, on the way home, I was explaining to them the story and what was going on and who was who I remembered all of their names. It just took over my life. And then that was a good time for that sort of thing to happen. What with the action figures and things like that. And it just became and stayed a part of my life ever since. When did you read the novelization? Because this was your idea. You came to me and said, Hey, if you ever want to talk about the book version of it, let's do it. And I read the novelization 20 years ago, maybe it was, um, and it was actually lucky that my wife has a, a hard copy. Most of my reading for in prep for this podcast, I've just been reading an ebook version, but my wife actually has a hard copy that she inherited from her uncle, and looking at the bibliographic info... It says the first edition was printed in 1976. This is the seventh printing from June 1977, which means just in like half a year, they were up to the seventh printing uh, for this uh, for this book. Uh, so when and how did you get the book for the first time? Oh, man, this is a story in itself. Uh, my brother and I are adopted, and we're adopted from separate bio families. And I was about, this was about five years old when we got him. And before we adopted him, we would go up and visit with him with his foster parents a few times to try to set up. And I remember 
the, his older brother or older foster brother, his name was Tim, and he was in high school and he had the Star Wars novel just sitting on his shelf. And I looked at it and I asked him if I could see it. He could, and that's. I just kept looking at it because there were um, photo inserts in, in the middle of it that that had little descriptions of everything, and I was absolutely fascinated with it and i was overjoyed because it was more star wars stuff and timmy saw me doing this and he said hey you can uh, you can keep that and i was great (laughs) this became the first grown-up book i read it was a long process i had to ask my mom what a lot of the words were um this is when she taught me how to use a dictionary i believe but I read this over and over and over again because there were no v- we didn't have a VCR. I never got to see the movie again until God, years and years later. So this was this book, this one plus a this uh, kid storybook, the Star Wars storybook, were my primary um, interaction with the universe. That and the toys, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with it. And it was something I always read every about once a year. I think once, especially once they were all out, I'd read this one in Empire and Jedi. I take that for granted, and I'm not. I'm not much younger. I mean, I, I was born in '81, uh, so obviously Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back had both come and gone from the theaters. I do remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater when it was re-released a few years after 1983. Um, but yeah, I, I always take it for granted that, that how inaccessible the movies were at that time for when, when I talked to so many people about these, because for me, they were always there. And by that, I mean, we had my, my dad and my, my brother were like early adopters. We had two VHS, like VCR recorders, and he like did the wiring to plug them together so that if we rented a movie, we could immediately record it onto a blank VHS or, you know. Every once in a while, they would take advantage of the you know HBO you know premium like free weekend or something like that, or like a discount weekend or something, and he would just record a bunch of movies that were on HBO. So we had this large video library at home, uh, and it included all three of the Star Wars trilogy on three different tapes, which is kind of weird, like a sandwich between like Mr. Mom and Ghostbusters and other movies of that era. <laughs> Um, so yeah, whenever people are saying like, yeah, yeah, I saw the movie once and then I had to wait five years that I'm always like, really? That's so weird. But I have to think it's like, no, it's just a different, a different era. I never saw a new hope or star Wars as I called and still call it again until after I had seen Jedi. Mm. I thought on HBO once, which was funny. In the meantime, I had read this book and looked at these pictures and other pictures so much that I had, when I watched it again, it seemed extremely familiar. Yeah, the hard copy that I'm borrowing from my wife is like yours. It also has the picture inserts too, like right in the middle. Um, and like the first one is a picture of uh, Luke Skywalker on on the land speeder, and the, below it it says, six years ago, George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, began his first draft of a film that very well may become a milestone in the space fantasy genre." And it goes on from there. There's like ten pages of pictures. From the movie showing the action, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, everybody knows the story of the movie, and the plot of the novelization does not differ very much. But there are a few kind of some salient details that kind of like jump out, especially like rereading this again after so long. Uh, so I think we'll kind of just go through some of our notes and just talk about the major differences and, and what kind of leaps out at us. And I think, first of all, we have to just start with the prologue. 
I'm not going to do this for the entire thing, but I do just want to read through this prologue. Another galaxy, another time. The Old Republic was the Republic of Legend, greater than distance or time. No need to know where it was or whence it came, only to know that it was THE Republic. Once, under the wise rule of the Senate and the protection of the Jedi Knights, the Republic throve and grew. But as often happens when wealth and power pass beyond the admirable and attain the awesome, then appear those evil ones who have greed to match. So it was with the Republic at its height. Like the greatest of trees able to withstand any external attack, the Republic rotted from within, though the danger was not visible from outside. Aided and abetted by restless, power-hungry individuals within the government and the massive organs of commerce, the ambitious Senator Palpatine caused himself to be elected President of the Republic. He promised to reunite the disaffected among the people and to restore the remembered glory of the Republic. Once secure in office, he declared himself emperor, shutting himself away from the populace. Soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlickers he had appointed to high office, and the cries of the people for justice did not reach his ears. Having exterminated through treachery and deception the Jedi Knights, guardians of justice in the galaxy, the imperial governors and bureaucrats prepared to institute a reign of terror among the disheartened worlds of the galaxy. Many used the Imperial forces and the name of the increasingly isolated Emperor to further their own personal ambitions. But a small number of systems rebelled at these new outrages. Declaring themselves opposed to the new order, they began the great battle to restore the Old Republic. From the beginning, they were vastly outnumbered by the systems held in thrall by the Emperor. In those first dark days, it seemed certain the bright flame of resistance would be extinguished before it could cast the light of new truth across the galaxy of oppressed and beaten peoples. That is from the First Saga, Journal of the Wills. And then there's a nice little fictitious quotation. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Naturally, they became heroes. Quoted to <laughs> Senator Leia Organa of Alderaan. What do you think about that, reading that after all these years and all of the material that has come out since? Well, what's great about it is about how the first half of it maps almost exactly to the prequels Mm -hmm. up to. And then you hit somewhere in which Lucas obviously went in a different way before. It's fascinating. First of all, I did know the name Palpatine way before Return of the Jedi because of this thing. But it was pretty obvious that Palpatine was not a Sith Lord. And also, he didn't really seem to be that evil. He just seemed to be inept and was easily corrupted by the generals and governors and bureaucrats around him. To the extent that, and it also definitely seems like this took place a lot longer ago than 20 years. Mm -hmm. Because it hints at, or even comes right out and say that, I don't think Palpatine is supposed to be the emperor on the throne right now. Because they referred to later corrupt emperors. Yeah, it, the, yeah. The timeline of this is very weird and hard to match up. And and the one thing is, I mean, just the presence of Obi Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, and how old we think they might be, kind of really throws the timeline uh, into into question. And I want to come back to that. But you're right. Um, this is the first time we actually hear the name Palpatine, 
and that does not get mentioned canonically until 1999's The Phantom Menace. That's the first time in any of the movies that a character is referred to as Palpatine. And yeah, I just, I, I mean, I remember always taking that for granted that that was his name, um, but it's because it comes from the books. Also, the Sith is never mentioned in the original trilogy of movies. Uh, that's only something from the, the books and, and eventually in, in the prequel trilogy movies. But yeah, I had the same thought reading through this. I was like, that was not the original version for the Emperor. It's not that he was Darth Vader's Dark Lord master uh, of this Dark Jedi. He was just this corrupt politician who took advantage and then just kind of became lost in his own little corruption and and you kind of like see him just like isolated and and maybe going a little bit more crazy and a little bit more fickle whilst all the people are around him and honestly like if we're drawing a a historical comparison in modern day i see him as a little bit george uh, w bush maybe he was definitely responding to nixon when yeah, he was yeah. And the cool thing for me in this is, uh, as much as you know, the line in Revenge of the Sith resonates with me with the "This is how democracy ends with thunderous applause." In this, you it really didn't seem to be one giant event changed it over. This was definitely a gradual thing. Right. He was making more commentary on on not necessarily about how corrupt people can how a corrupt person can destroy a, a democracy, but just how corruption breeds more corruption. And about how, you know, you get somebody, a corrupt, uh, quote-unquote, useful idiot in charge, Mm -hmm. and then you get people like Grand Moff Tarkin who wind up taking over and things like that. It's... It's, it's, he was definitely making a different statement then that he then um, adjusted through the filter of George W. Bush, I'd say. And I think that is one of many reasons why I think, conceptually, I have a problem with the prequel trilogy, um, just as a, as a mere idea of going back, and I don't like the, the numerology and the whole system of numbering these movies. I think that was a mistake that caused more problems than not. I think this story, I think this is the perfect place to start the adventure, because it is the adventure of Luke Skywalker, as the book was so-called. And I mentioned this is credited to George Lucas. It was actually ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster, as the, the actual ghostwriter. And with the prequel trilogy of going back for the sake of the narrative of the movies, you kind of have to make a giant climactic event that brings down the old Republic, seeds the Empire, and the the death of the Jedi all at once. And it just feels very kind of forced and, and abrupt. And I think it does make a lot more sense if this was a gradual, if we saw the slow decline, but that's harder to capture in a space fantasy movie. Um, so I think it works better if it's just history and not the story that you're watching on film. Yeah, I agree completely. Because, I mean, empires don't fall overnight. Rome right. wasn't overnight. It definitely didn't fall overnight. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's, usually, t- it's taken us at least four years. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's reading about it in that that gives the current situation, you know, new meaning a little bit, too. About how you don't really realize your empire's go- or your republic's gone until it's been gone for a bunch of years. Then you look back because people refer to the empire, the regular people refer to the empire as even being a good thing back in the day. They say, mm-hmm. well, the empire was good, but now it's getting terrible. The last thing, sort of thinking about Palpatine's description in this as just, you know, 
a greedy and corrupt politician who, once he attains that power, just becomes kind of burdened by it, and, and you just kind of get the feeling that he's just isolated, and it's really his aides, and he's probably got a he's probably got the the Carl Rove and the Dick Cheney around him that are doing all the manipulating and things like that, while he's just you know in his office tweeting populist screeds that don't really reflect <laughs> his his own positions. Um, jumping forward a little bit. Uh, Darth Vader has a sequence where he's kind of watching Tarkin and Mahdi argue about something. I think this is before the Millennium Falcon docks, uh, maybe, uh, or, or it's after it's after they've blown up Alderaan or something. Um, and it, it, we kind of get a little bit into Darth Vader's mindset, and he sounds a lot more coldly ambitious. Uh, and he he feels very he he feels superior and he holds himself above people like Tarkin, and he makes it sound like they are useful idiots for the time. But he has plans that might include taking them out if he needs to. And this section really makes it sound like his rise to power is his own doing. He is not connected to the Emperor in any way. It's I, I just found that kind of like fascinating to see that in isolation like that. That he, like Darth Vader's rise and the destruction of the Jedi and the rise of the Empire may have run parallel to each other, but they weren't part of the one grand scheme. And he maybe has dreams of becoming the Emperor that aren't about overthrowing his master. Yeah, Uh, I I found this very fascinating look into him. Yeah, I like that a lot. I was trying to find the the line because it's right after Alderaan is destroyed, mm-hmm. and it opens up. And you get his internal monologue afterwards because the destruction of Alderaan is not described in this, and Obi Wan doesn't feel it either, which is strange. Mm-hmm. But you get the impression that he's a little bothered by the fact that they just blew up a planet because you know he was like, "Wow, they blew up a whole planet," but it was full of traitors. He had to remind himself, mm-hmm. and he's definitely got a bigger view of the universe that doesn't seem to involve these people, but these people are necessary right now. But you know that the second that they're not, he's going to feels he's just going to wipe them out and take over. Yeah. And the, the thing that we kind of mentioned, like what uh, Foster is able to do, we actually get more personality and more characterization from Darth Vader in this book than we do in the first movie. Um, I mean, it's almost impossible for me to put it myself back in that place. But I mean, I think, Darth Vader is such a commanding physical presence, but Grand Marf Tarkin is like the standout performance because it's Peter frickin' Cushing, uh, and he just, he like oozes that character. Uh, we don't get much in terms of attitude or, or persona from Vader within the movie. No, yeah. but in this one, you definitely do. I mean, yeah. even before that, you get his frustration in not being able to find the plans and getting, you know, fooled over and over again. He is not not liking that at all you really get it and, and that bleeds out and everyone's everyone gets more and more afraid of him as he starts acting that way can i read a quick passage i just found the thing that yep. we're talking about yep. he says um despite his advances in intricate technological methods of annihilation the actions of mankind remain unnoticeable to an uncaring unimaginably vast universe if vader's grandest plans ever came to pass all that would change and i'm like well, that's <laughs> awesome. All right, then, going back then, uh, one of the other, of course, big sequences that is in the book uh, that was in the original script but cut from the movie 
we actually see the scene between Luke Skywalker. We meet him earlier in the book than we do in the movie. Um, I'm trying to remember. Like It's like almost a half an hour before we meet him in the movie. Um, but we meet him early on because he is able to see part of the battle, the capture of Leia's ship from down on the desert planet of Tatooine when he's fixing one of the moisture wrappers. And he takes his sky hopper into town to Anchorhead, and he's got his friends, and everybody's familiar with the books and the radio drama and the comics know that this is where his friends call him Wormy. Yeah. But we also we see his scene with Big's Darklighter. And I, I really like this scene, and I'm always conflicted because, on the one hand, I like how tightly the movie is paced... Uh, and we've talked about how the editing of that movie is so masterful and the way characters are inter- introduced, and I wouldn't necessarily want to change that. But I do like seeing Luke interacting with other people his own age, and the, this friend that he that he has a kind of older brother hero worship of uh, that he will eventually become friends with, and, and they'll do the Death Star run, and it gives more gravity to Biggs's death. But one of the things about the scene that I, I also like was the way they talk about the Academy, this mythical thing. I've always found that in this movie, when he says, you know, he wants to go to the Academy, the first time I saw these movies, I never thought that meant joining the Empire. I thought that the Academy was just like a a sort of uh, autonomous like thing that if you wanted to learn how to fly a spaceship, you had to get a license for it. You couldn't be self-taught. You had to go through Academy. There were rules if you wanted to be a commercial pilot that flies freight from one end of the galaxy to the other. Uh, and that's what Luke was talking about when he says going to the Academy, and that's what Biggs was doing. But somewhere along the way in the expanded universe in the 90s, that became the Imperial Academy. And it was assumed that Biggs was like joined the Imperial Academy and defected. Like They actually made comics about that. So the assumption was that Luke was jo- going to join the Imperial Academy too. And I don't like that. Yep, and that's definitely not the case here. I think the first place where the, it became Imperial Academy was probably on the radio drama. Because Luke is watching that um, the recruitment ad that's definitely from the Empire, and he's like submitting his application at that point. But in this, it's definitely not because as Luke actually says, "I won't let myself get drafted by the Empire." Mm-hmm. It's it's very nice, but I don't think it, it wouldn't have worked as well in the movie because of pacing. But it's a very like war movie trope thing where his friend goes off to war and then he finds him later and all of that stuff. Plus, it humanizes Luke and helps expand the universe a little bit other other things in the the book uh that i just took note of uh one of your favorite scenes the the conference room on the death star uh the differences with like general Tagi and and the other imperials uh just have different dialogue and different personalities anything you want to mention there or i don't know uh, this is te- telekinesis to uh grab and drink a cup of coffee <laughs> Do we see any demonstration like that of the Force in the movie, or is it just the choking? Just the choke. The first time we see telekinesis, unless you count Luke firing the torpedoes that way, is, is on Hoth. Yeah, it's the it's grabbing the lightsaber. You're right, yeah. The idea of um, the Emperor being a figurehead in the background gives a different meaning to uh, Tarkin's line of, I've just received word from the Emperor himself. Mm-hmm. You get the idea that I don't thinks because uh you get the strong impression especially if you read his description here that tarkin is out to be emperor Mm -hmm. 
is his ambition. He wants to carve a path and take over with his military that he's building under there. And you really get the sense that the other people in that in that conference room are both aware of this but unable to do anything about it. Yeah, 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 good point. Moving on to the, the depiction of C-3PO in this. Without Anthony Daniels' performance, um, which does kind of lend more to the somewhat effete, foppish British butler, I think he comes off as a little bit more sleazy in the, in the book, almost. I'm trying to think of another word to describe him. Well, I can think of one, but you'd have to... <laughs> yeah. It's... I mean, Luke even just taken aback at that one point when he does the, you're lucky that he doesn't smash you into a million pieces right now. It's like, no, no, dude, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? Um, I even found, like, I, I don't remember the exact passage, but I found that there was some ambiguity about the uh, the agricultural droid that breaks down uh, um, for uh, and uh, with R5-D4. Like, was it sabotaged by 3PO when, when uh, Luke's back was turned? Um. I don't know. He he calls himself CV-3PO, and the V is for versatile. He definitely has more... I, I think what he was described by Lucas as more of a car salesman. Yeah, that was the exactly what I got. He's definitely trying to sell himself like a car salesman. Yeah, a little bit more fast-talking. Um, well, his statement about his first job loading uh, programming binary load lifters is bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because when he, the first honest thing he says is that yes, I speak Bachi because he's like he was thrilled to be able to say something honest for once. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm trying to, God, I, I, like I'm trying to like recast the movie in my head, and instead of going like the 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 English Butler route, like what if you cast like somebody from Goodfellas or something? <laughs> like, like, like what if Joe Pesci did the voice of C three PO? Oh man! Fellas, movie just with assassin droids. <laughs> the next thing that I had was was the the interaction between Luke and Obi Wan in uh, in Obi Wan's hut, which plays out very differently. Sure does. Um, one thing we get we get references to lots of different animals that we don't see in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> I wrote them down, but even before that, and this was also filmed originally this way in the movie before they edited it differently but the order of events is way different it's like the first thing that happens is they see the message then they ignore that and talk about you know then there's the then he talks then he tells luke his father is a jedi hmm. then he gets a lightsaber then he tells him about vader and the force and then he says he has to come with him to alderaan and goes well remember that you remember that that message <laughs> Yeah, I know the, that order is completely. Yeah, all, pretty much everything he told uh, Luke about Vader is slightly different than the way it's said in the in the movie in the order. Things that I, I definitely picked up on was when Luke says, "You fought in the Clone Wars," but that was so long ago. Maybe it was because of when I read this, but for some for like the longest time, that's kind of the way I interpreted his reading without him actually saying it in the movie, like. Before that, we got the prequels and everything. When when he said with that kind of disbelief, you fought in the Clone Wars, I thought he was referring to something that was almost a hundred years ago. And I thought the disbelief wasn't that like I thought it was like it would be like talking to somebody today who you would think would be in like their fifties or sixties or something like that, and talks about storming Omaha Beach or something like that. And you're like, hang on a second, that was 80 years ago, or almost, or something like that. Like, how old are you? 
uh, like that's that's the kind of sense that I got, and and it this idea was that almost like Aragorn in in the Lord of the Rings trilogy or something like that, like something about the Jedi. It wasn't just Yoda being a Jedi meant you could live not necessarily eternally, but much longer. And and the look of, dis- of disbelief on Luke's face was that yeah, Obi Wan's a Jedi Knight. He's been around for two hundred years or something like that. So when he says he fought in the Clone Wars, that was a big deal. Now, what complicates that is the fact that Luke's father was also a Jedi. And even without getting into the retcons, like, when did his father die? It, it's, it's complicated in this. Yeah, trying to get a definite timeline doesn't make... That's just an exercise in futility, especially when you get red slash leader later. <laughs> Blue leader, yeah, yeah. But that was my impression, too, that it was definitely – there's so many hints that seem that really seem to say that the Empire has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone alive who remembers the Republic. Right, right. Because right. as I was saying before, people aren't – a lot of – they're not striving to re, to rebuild the Republic. They're, they just want to get the Empire back to where it was mm-hmm. or just – that's the good thing that they remember is when the Empire had good emperors. All right. Yeah, and it's yeah, but based on the prequels, that was eighteen years ago, twenty years ago at the most, something like that. It's Tatooine did a number on on Ben there, then. Yeah, I also just and I've I've always felt like that, but like the way the Jedi Knights are described, both in the prologue, the way Obi Wan talks about them, I've always I've seen them as sort of a cross between feudal samurai in Eastern cultures. But also from this novel, a little bit like the Musketeers from um, Alexander Dumas novels, like the Three Musketeers or something like that, like that they would be uh, a sort of protectorate guard of the Republic, uh, and based on like you know the, the Disney version of the of the Three Musketeers with Kiefer Sutherland and Oliver Platt and Charlie Sheen, how how they're disbanded and and Obi Wan would be like the lone holdout. Right, that's a good way of thinking about, it, especially with the way his um, sword fighting is described. He does a little like instinctive salute at yeah. the end of it after he kills. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, also speaking of lightsabers, though, I mean, it's just described a little different. It says it as a jewel on the hilt, but also he mentions, and then Han mentions later, lightsabers are still in use. He mentions that it's still it's not used in this part of the Empire. Mm-hmm. Han says. But it seems like they're still around, and also there might be other Jedi around. Yeah, he says something to the effect like that in certain quarters of the galaxy they're still in use. Um, but he also describes them the formal weapon of the Jedi. Formal weapon of the Jedi. Was- yeah, meaning like you could also see a Jedi going to war with a blaster rifle or something like that, like pistol. Like that. this is more of a yeah a ceremonial thing. Exactly, it's like they would be like the rapier of a musketeer. Other people use rapiers, but the musketeer, but. Um, uses it in a way much more finesse than anybody else. Yeah, that's why when I'm watching like the Clone Wars and I'm seeing these whole huge ground battle scenes, and I'm like, put your lightsaber down and pick up a blaster. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. Um, we don't want to skip over the best line in the book from uh, in Kenobi's house. Oh, oh yeah, go go back to that then. When he's talking, he's talking about the line in which he says, "I understand you've be- you've become quite a good pilot yourself. I know that that isn't hereditary, but even a duck must ne- have to learn how to swim." Luke's- to which Luke asks, "What's a duck?" <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I can't believe that exchange did not make it into the finished film. 
and and then yeah, skipping skipping forward uh, about a hundred pages when we get to the the lightsaber duel between Obi Wan and Vader, I found it kind of fascinating that we get this one little brief glimpse into into Obi Wan's POV where it seems like. He, he, like there, there's this growing tension where he starts to sweat into his eyes and things get a little bit foggy and it's ambiguous but you kind of wonder is like okay it seems like they're fighting with the force before they actually take their lightsabers out they're like feeling each other out and, and the other thing about this just like the fact that the force is not capitalized threw me off as I was reading this because every other book that I've read the force is capitalized but yeah just that that sensation where he's like his like mind gets cloudy for a second and he's like he's sweating and it's like it's already he's already under strain and under tension before they've thrown like the first lightsaber parry. Right, the old samurai psychic duel kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, and Ben does not throw the fight at all. Vader just wins. Yeah. It yeah. Found weird. And then even after that then, it's the the voice in Luke's head is a little bit it's it's considerably more ambiguous about what he is hearing than it is when you clearly get Alec Guinness's voice saying run Luke run in the immediate aftermath of that and you hear his voice throughout that um it like in in the way it's written it's kind of like is Luke hearing that just as as a memory like he's like checking like his headset like did anybody else hear that voice or something like that and then in the final trench run Luke like blacks out before he fires the torpedoes. Like when he he goes into like this Jedi mind trance, and he is like totally like so in the moment that we don't even get it. It's like he like snaps out of it. He's like, oh, I just I fired. I I gotta get out of here. Like I've already done the job. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is this plays out completely differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was that, and in the the Star Wars storybook, it's the same way they describe it. it if I remember that one. It said he scarcely remembered firing the torpedoes, but the cheers of his friend had informed friends informed him that he had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is why that's how I that was my memory of it because I had read these things and I hadn't seen the movie since then. So it was very surprising to me when I like saw him just sitting there, standing there, all intense with his eyes open, pushing, yeah. and then like, oh, that's different. It's, it's like a hyper focused moment when he's like concentrating on that and. Uh... Yeah, very, very different read. It's very, very curious about uh, the way the Force is treated in this. Uh, and I've, I've kind of jumped all over from here. Like, the, the other big scene that we that we alluded to is we get the moment, and this is in um, the, the special editions we get. It's not Red Leader, because in the book and the comics, they are in Blue Squadron. Um, but yeah, the the leader, Blue Leader, talks about knowing and flying with Luke's father, and what a, what a cheer that was. It's... <laughs> It's a shame he then killed all those kids. <laughs> really, really, we don't like, talk about that. Like, I've got some funny stories about your dad. I'll tell you when I come home. <laughs> Good man, but whoo he 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 had a temper on him. <laughs> after, we, after we blow up this base, let me tell you some stories about your old man. You know this this has been this has been on my mind for a little while, and and it, reading this again. It's a question that I've talked about with a few other people, guests on this show, and, and some people in the comments have mentioned this idea that Star Wars might have a finite amount of stories, and maybe there's only so far you can go with that. And my instinct is that that is not true. You can, there are endless possibilities that you can do in this universe, but it really feels like this first adventure is sort of the prototypical one like this is the this is the classic hero's journey because because 
this world is a Frankenstein of deliberately chosen Frankenstein of all of these classic hero tropes from ancient mythology, from Westerns, from World War II epics, from swashbuckling stories and adventures and everything like that. George Lucas grabbed every genre he could find, threw them in a blender, and came up with this. Uh, and it was masterful the way that he pulled it off, uh, with, with thanks to a lot of people who helped him along the way. And I think this does feel so prototypical, and, and I think that's kind of why when you look at way they came back to this, you know, 40 years later, The Force Awakens is the same story, in a sense. And I was thinking about it a little bit before that even, and I've kind of been thinking about it again, like, what if they wait a couple of years, and instead of trying to do other Star Wars stories or trying to continue on new adventures, what if they rebooted it? What if they told the the adventures of a young Luke Skywalker again from the beginning? How would you feel about that? <laughs> My initial thought was, why not? I'll watch it. But <laughs> usually, I'm way more easy on those sort of things these days. You know, the rebooted Trek doesn't bother me any. any mm-hmm. And this works. First of all, I reject the premise outright that there's only a finite amount of stories. Okay, good. I just absolutely <laughs> reject that because now, people the thing that people don't take into consideration whenever they go on the hero's journey explanation and all this stuff. Joseph Campbell had just written. You know, the hero with a thousand faces just a little bit before this and George Lucas had written it read it and was inspired by it and therefore threw all these in it's all you all you basically the only troops of that are hero her hero re- gets presented with a quest hero rejects the quest hero accepts the quest hero leaves goes on an adventure hero comes back changed that's not a story. You know, that's not a story that leads to any level of finite anything. And plus what this basically is, is just, a, it's it's um, Kurosawa's hidden fortress mixed right. with Midway. Right. So why not have the seven samurai mixed with Tora, Tora, Tora? Right. You know, you can, you can still take the tropes and tell the same sort of journey without having to make sure that you, you it's like... If I go, I could go real philosophic and say it's the difference between Hegel's idea of history repeating itself and Marx's. Hegel says history repeats itself, and that's the only way that humanity, um, the lessons get driven home. Marx said that's not true. History does repeat itself, but in farce. It repeats itself to mock the earlier one. Hmm. And that's, uh, you could use that as a criticism for how the sequel trilogy went. It was too much of a just repeating. Mm. With trying to, not without being blatant or how how can I say this? It's only repeating it without making a reason for the repeat. You see, yeah. the repeat is supposed to be telling you something about the original that wasn't told before. It's not giving you new information. It's just re- recycling, rehashing the same plot and character elements without building upon the universe. I. I think that is true because at the end of the day you're back with a they just they, it's a rebellion versus the empire by another name um and I, i'm glad that you said you rejected it because i i think that is true i think i, I think of what the the sequel trilogy shows is that you can be locked in if that is the dynamic by which you you pinpoint yourself in because i think there is a sense that the star wars adventures have to be about youth 
coming into its own and the adventure of a young hero finding that identity. And that, in a sense, is the, the young rebelling against the old. So you get the story of a rebellion fighting against a older, more established, more dominant power. And you realize that with governmental bodies and an evil empire and a band of resistance fighters fighting against that. Uh, the, the same... I mean, the Battle of Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader is just a microcosm of the Rebellion versus the Empire. And I think if that is what you're going to focus on, and if, if, if that is the story you're going to tell, then, I mean, you can repeat that. But that is not the only type of Star Wars story you can tell. You can have other adventures, other heroes' journeys. But, I mean, to, to get back to my other question, like, at this point... I wouldn't object to them just trying to reboot and retell this whole new this story with new actors and and put a new spin on it and everything like that. I would watch it because I think their story is fun enough and and has enough like spirit of adventure that it would be worthwhile and it would find a new audience. So I would be fine if they attempted that. Like I used to hate the idea of like remaking Friday the 13th and Halloween and just doing the same story again and again. Uh, but now I'm like I don't care. It, 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 like they're they're looking for a different audience, and I, I do not have any kind of ownership of the original property. So the same is the same is true with Star Wars. Worked in Battlestar Galactica pretty well the yeah. last episode, but yeah. Yeah. still was the same sort of story with enough differences in it to keep it fresh. Right. I mean, they could do something like that if they wanted to. I think. And again, I was not a big Star Wars fan until the J.J. Abrams like remake with the, the characters and everything like that in 2009. I loved that movie, and that made me interested in the original characters, the dynamic between Kirk and Spock, so that, you know, even though they were played by different actors, that made me go back and watch the original series and the original series of movies and everything like that. And And for me... It is, like that that is the Star Trek that I prefer. It is Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, Uhura, Bo, um, Sulu, those characters. Whether it's Carl Urban or DeForest Kelly or Bill Shatner or Chris Pine playing them, I don't really care. I like those characters, that, those names. So anyway, that, that was a bit of a tangent. Like any other like big big moments or things about this book that you wanted to single out? Um uh, one thing I really liked was Yavin 4. I, I like Foster's descriptions of the planets whenever he got a planet to describe. He really made Tatooine come alive. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Very Seemed early. way just a desert. And uh, Yavin 4, when they takes a little bit of time to talk about the the temple they were in. I know in the EU, and they probably still kept it, it's, it was an old ancient Jedi temple. Mm-hmm. I like this. In this idea, it was just an unknown primitive race that had used techniques that nobody knew to build this amazing thing. And that harkens back to Lucas's love of primitive overcoming thing. And I, I liked that. I like it way better than I, I like that. There's just mysteries like that. I like it back when George Lucas was writing things that, you know, he would put down, maybe he'd get to it. Maybe he wouldn't, but the way that your brain, you know, you can follow off those tangents. It was just made it seem like a much bigger galaxy than it eventually became. It's yes, it absolutely is. And it, what it, what that reminds me of is uh, going back the, the Lord of the Rings movies, the fellowship of the ring, that first movie, when the fellowship is on the river, when they're in the three boots after they've left, uh, the, the elven 
little stronghold wherever they were they were given uh, their gifts, and they're heading down the river, and they pass through that little pass with those two ginormous statues of those guards with their hands up, and I'm like, who the hell built those things, and how long have they been there? That tickles the part of my brain. It's the same part of my brain that like likes the sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu universe, that this idea that there have been worlds and civilizations and species that were here long before us that we can't even comprehend the the order of magnitude and the technology that was used to develop those things and and the pyramids the aliens man and everything like that um that technology that was used to build that has then been lost but those things are still there that's kind of like the yeah, the, the Masasi temples, of, they, they were eventually called Anyavan, was created by a civilization. That civilization is no longer on that planet. What happened to them? Um, and those kind of mysteries just make it feel bigger and more expansive. I love that. You're right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I, I need to get back to my, my tangent because this was part of the, the reason for it, was this idea is if they rebooted it, if they started Star Wars over from scratch, I like this as a starting point and also because like like if if you started from here where you go might not be to the empire strikes back and to return of the jedi like if this is your starting point Darth Vader is not Luke's father and Princess Leia is not Luke's sister what happens from there if those are not gospel truths uh, and I'm kind of jealous of people like the people who are reading the Marvel comics that, you know, I've come back and I've backtracked and I've, my brain has had to make allowances for the way that those things deviate from what I have always understood to be canon. But at the time, it's like, no, they, you know, Luke and Leia could kiss and there was nothing wrong with that. In fact, that was kind of expected. Um, you, you would think that they, these are the two young lovers, um, even though, I mean, credit to, to Lucas and Foster, like the, the idea of this love triangle was there from the beginning with Han, Han saying, you know, maybe you think a princess and a guy like me, and she definitely thinks about him. Yep. And the internal monologue makes it clear that Han's starting to think he, he isn't even sure himself at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I really like this story <laughs> just, on a, just on a pure story level. This, uh, I mean, for the longest time, I, I was in the place where The Empire Strikes Back was my favorite one, and I maintain the reason for that is The Empire Strikes Back is technically a better movie. It is. Um, it is better acted. It is better written. It is better directed. It, the music, the score is better. It's better edited. All of those things on the technical levels are better. But as I have gotten older, there's something about the romance and the pacing and just the something about this original story just tickles me in a, in a way and you know of all of the classic iconic scenes about Star Wars that people remember for me the thing about this first movie that I that takes me back to my childhood was that moment with Luke and Leia trapped in the Death Star and they, there's no bridge they can't exit and they're caught between stormtroopers in front of them and stormtroopers behind them and Luke throws that repelling line over the thing, and they swing across this chasm. That moment, just like the, with the music kicking up and her kissing him on the cheek for luck and everything, and like that is for me, that is Star Wars. And it's not a scene with lightsabers, and it's not a scene with starships. It's this feeling of adventure and 
doing something that should be impossible, but you're young and you're reckless and you're the freaking hero. So you're going to give it a shot. And that's what Star Wars is to me. So Man, you've been hanging out in my brain lately. <laughs> that, that scene when I was I've a also kid. Been, I've also been drinking two mudslides before we recorded this. So. Yeah, well, it, I, it's, I'm in Wisconsin, so I'm not even... <laughs> No, but that scene is the one the one scene that burned into my brain when I was a kid. That because it was just more so than the lightsabers or the spaceships or anything. It was just that swinging across that chasm. And and I agree with you. And I the other day when somebody asked me what my favorite Star Wars movie is, and every other time I would say Empire for the same reasons you did, and I was about to and I stopped and I said, "You know what? A New Hope is the best one." It's a standalone movie. It's got the best beginning, middle, and end. If it had stopped, it would have been a fine movie in and of itself, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't need anything. And it it hits so well. Any final thoughts about the the novelization or the the story that we call Star Wars before we head on to the next section? Uh, one last thing. Where was it? I kept track of the amount, and when I saw the duck thing. I have to mention there are three dogs mentioned. I don't remember remember what page it was, but he mentions the word pandas, too. Yes, pandas. He wouldn't know a bantha from a panda. (laughs) Also, there's a monkey is mentioned. One of the the cantina is, oh, no, Chewbacca has a monkey face. And another creature looked like a cross between a capybara and a baboon. (laughs) And also dinosaurs were mentioned. Not to mention worms. If he's wormy, what kind of worms live in sand? If there's worms in it, it's not sand. Uh, I think Paul Hicks would have the answer to that. It's his favorite movie. <laughs> oh, yes. But I reject that, too. I've heard that idea. People go, well, maybe it's like the Sarlacc. Yes, because if I'm bullying someone, mm-hmm. the first what I'm going to call them is this huge, scary thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Um I, I was going to lead into the questionnaire and I was going to ask you what's a duck, but now <laughs> since you brought us back to that, that seems too important. Are you ready to answer the Galactic Questionnaire 4.0? I am. Ask me your questions, Jedi Master. I'm not afraid. What is your favorite Luke Skywalker outfit? Um, Return of the Jedi. Classic black? Mm-hmm. All right. What is your favorite Leia Organa outfit? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Which one? Just the Hoth one. Okay. Uh, number 10. Better suicide run. Green leader named Arvel Krened crashing his A-wing into the bridge of the Super Star Destroyer or Vice Admiral Haldo flying her cruiser at light speed into the First Order fleet. Oh, I got to go with Hondo because that scene was very, very well shot. My jaw dropped. Silent like that, but I remember theaters had to start posting signs that said the the sound will go out in the movie during this moment. It's not a problem. It's 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 deliberate. Yes, but you know, with the way humanity has been over the last three months, nothing, no warning whatsoever surprises me anymore. All right, question the fourth. Who is your favorite character not introduced in the films? Uh, Basically meaning expanded universe character from comics, movies, radio dramas, books, anything else? I'll go with Snips. Nice, nice. Uh, Next question. What is your favorite animal mount? The Dewback, the Tauntaun, 
or the Orback, which is the space horse from the Rise of Skywalker that they ride at the final battle. Well, thanks for telling me that. I did not know what that was called. <laughs> I figured most people wouldn't know the name. I love the Dewback because in this book right here, there there's a double page picture of, of a stormtrooper on one, and I remember the commercial for the toy, and I remember really really wanting it. And then I remember seeing the movie again and only having them be in the background and being really confused as to why I remembered them so much. But. So then you should have loved the, when the special edition came out and you got the <laughs> One would think, but it yeah. turns out... All right, next question. Ray is the daughter of A, two people that nobody has ever heard of, B, a clone of Emperor Palpatine that for some reason didn't look or anything like him or have the Force... Or C, literally anybody else. What do I? Does it get to be what I say <laughs> from now on? It's your head cannon. <laughs> oh, it's my head cannon. I don't do head cannons. So she apparently is the granddaughter of Pollock slash of a Palpatine clone or something mm. else. I can't wait to. I'm, I'm going to get to rewatch that one for the. It'll be the, my first rewatch on, on the fourth. We're very, very excited. All right. Then the final question: What is Baby Yoda's name? His name is. Um, it's a. It's a very strained uh, Bothan dialect. It's. It's uh, Baby Yoda. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, John Schaefer Hames, for appearing on this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Uh, my wife and I do podcasts. We do Married with Comics, where we talk about comics and or whatever else comes to our mind. Lately, we've been just kind of taking turns recording little bits of our favorite things, which we call Fireside Favorites. And then we read each other Encyclopedia Brown Mysteries and see if the other one can solve them. Uh, we also have a show called The Rod Pod, where we cover IDW Transformers. Uh, phase two in order. We'll be getting back to that soon. And I am also over on the Longbox Crusade Network uh, with Pat and Delvin, where we do Marvel Transformers on Transformers Chronicles, the Marvel years. Listeners, if you are struggling in this period of quarantine because of the pandemic, uh, the thing that you did not realize you need is two people reading Encyclopedia Brown adventures to you. I absolutely love the new Fireside episodes that you guys have been doing. That is so fun. Like, I was like, really? Are they going to do this? This is kind of dumb. And like five minutes into it, I was like, this is kind of brilliant. So <laughs> thank you. I, I highly recommend checking those out. Those are a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Okay, folks, uh, we're going to play a promo right now, and then after that, I will read your feedback from the last episode. Stick around. Hi, Maggie. What are you writing? Oh, hi, John. I'm writing down ideas for a new promo for Married with Comics. I like our old promo. But the clips from the old promo are from an episode that's never even aired. It's lazy podcasting. But we're incredibly lazy podcasters. And the only thing you've written down are the words, come up with ideas for the new promo. Well, I guess we'll just have to fall back on plan B, then. Uh, B for blackmail professional podcast guest Tim Price into doing a Mephisto bit? Exactly. Greetings, internerds. It is I, Mephisto, ruler of the netherworld and prince of all evil. I am taking this time for my evil machinations to issue a warning to everyone in podcast land. 
avoid married with comics with John and Maggie at all costs. They're a despicably lovable pair of newlyweds who talk about comic books and other areas of geekdom with enthusiasm and joy that is anathema to me. Ugh. Just listen to them as they paraphrase panels. For those who don't have the issue, Thor's expression is pretty much that of anyone who reads this issue pretty once much. you're done with it. Yeah. You, you there, everyone's sick of this and sick of you. I am pointing where you need to go, which is away from here and away from this issue. <laughs> and I do love that first panel. It's pretty neat. I like it. Batman going swoosh. Explain exposition. I have no idea what's happening. In this one, it looks like Superman's tearing a bridge down. Why is he destroying a bridge? I think this is part of his eventual reign of terror. Is oh, maybe. Another thing. It's a bridge. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> and comment on all their favorite comics. Everything about this issue is just gollywhackers. <laughs> He's causing huge amounts of property damage, which, by the way, at least when the Fantastic Four does it, they pay the city back. Superman's not going to pay anybody back for this. Married with Comics, available directly at marriedwcomics.libson.com on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Married with Comics Podcast. We've got everything you need. On the last episode, me and my guest Omar discussed the current state of Star Wars fandom, how more fans seem to be forgiving or praising the once-hated prequel trilogy and embracing a fashionable choice of hating on the new Disney movies. This conversation produced a lot of great responses and back-and-forth comments on the Fire & Water website post. For the sake of expediency, I am not going to read every comment. I am going to cherry-pick a few, and then I'll mention everyone else who did leave a comment at the end. First up, Andrew Leyland from the Palace of Glittering Delights said, I am one of those people who thinks Revenge of the Sith is easily top five, possibly top three. Yes, some of this is the Clone Wars, and some of it is that I really believe the prequel-era characters and situations has more depth and places to explore than either the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. This wasn't realized perfectly on screen, I grant you, but I still think Sith works more often than not. Again, this is where we disagree. Uh, well, you know, I, it's, I don't entirely disagree with the position that Andy is coming for, where I think they're... There is room to explore the characters, and there's a sense of openness about the prequel trilogy era when you don't have the Empire as this defining bad guy, and there's there is more flexibility, and there are characters whose you know destinies we might not have set in stone. But it's just the way it was realized. Uh, it's just it's. I mean, for me because of the way how boring and ineffectively the the prequel trilogies were made like i don't care about the prequel era jedi or the droids or the clones or the politics everything about that era is kind of tainted by just feeling dull to me so there's a there's potential there's there's a place to explore that era i just i don't care about it so and for me 
I, I think Revenge of the Sith is my least favorite of all of the 11 Star Wars movies. Not because it's the worst or it's got the worst parts of it. It's just, for me, there's nothing redeeming about it. It's not that the lows are the lowest. It's just there aren't any highs. But that's for me. I know a lot of other people like Andy get a lot of, find a lot of good in that movie. I don't, but different strokes. Uh, Chris Franklin from this Fire and Water Network said, It's nice to hear how passionate Omar is about this subject. I have honestly been completely flummoxed by the turn against the Disney films and the new adoration of the prequels. It could partially be a generational thing, too, with younger folks who were kids in 1999 now being of age to kind of steer the pop culture ship and move that needle towards the things they loved as children. That always happens, and suddenly what was disdained for the better part of a decade and a half is good due to nostalgia. Again, maybe it's a generational thing, but not necessarily. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a bigger factor, but there's certainly people who are older than me who, I mean, yeah... Uh, Anderson One said, I loved the prequels from day one. I went and saw The Phantom Menace eight times in the theater. Still a movie-viewing record for me. I'd have been pretty happy if Revenge of the Sith was the last film, because episodes one through six tell a complete story, and nothing more is needed beyond that. The sequel trilogy really dropped the ball, but I love both the Clone Wars and Rebels animated series. So needless to say, I'm glad Star Wars continued beyond 1983. Uh, I, I agree in the fact that by the end of Episode Six, you have completed a story. By the end of Return of the Jedi, there is a story of Luke Skywalker and a story of the Rebellion that is finished. All of the bad guys are dead. There aren't any loose ends. So... That didn't have to be the end of the Star Wars movies. They, they could have done something else. With, I, I think it was tough to find a, a story thread that was worth continuing with episodes 7, 8, and 9. And unfortunately, I, I think just picking up the legacy of these characters, their children, without putting much more thought into it, I think was a bad idea. But I don't think that means the, you know, the, the sequel trilogy wasn't necessarily doomed to failure. You could have invented a reason to come back to these characters and this saga and, and find some way of continuing with the next generation. Unfortunately, I think they just said put in the next generation and it will continue the same fights as always and didn't put much more thought into it than that. And I, I do believe that is the problem. Their, the premise that they started with was faulty. Um, and actually, I could probably say that of a lot of the movies. They were just ill... The, the intentions were misguided. Uh, Lewis said, I won't let the Disney films paint Lucas and his prequels in a better light. There was a reason we looked forward to Disney taking over in the first place. I personally rank the prequels 1, 2, 3 in decreasing quality, all beneath the original trilogy. I agree with that. Uh, Lewis says, but for reasons others have touched on, I dare say that, taken as a whole, the prequel trilogy is indeed superior to the sequel trilogy. I, I, if I understand the way that was phrased, I, I think what he's saying, like, the, the trilogy as one story of episodes one, two, and three is tighter and more cohesive and coherent than the sequel trilogy of seven, eight, and nine. And yeah, unfortunately, that is true. The story from the beginning of The Phantom Menace to Revenge of the Sith makes a lot more clear sense than necessarily the narrative we're given in the others. 
Uh, Maggie Schaefer Hames, the other better half of the Married with Comics podcast, said, John and I were talking about this exact question the other day. We both initially went with the idea that we kind of do wish there was only the first three, but almost immediately realized that this would fly in the face of our main criticism of The Rise of Skywalker, in that it comes across in parts as desperately trying to win back fans that were disappointed by The Last Jedi, which still feels yucky. We got what we got, or like John said on the show, whether I like it or not, it's canon now. J. David Weeder of several former podcasts said, Omar needs to be on the show more often. I'm sure he would love to hear that. A. He tends to provoke great reactions from Ryan by thoughtfully and with great respect challenging him. This leads to great discussions. B. My biggest takeaway was the question of whether the Star Wars universe has finite storytelling potential. My knee-jerk reaction was to say no. This was based on shows like Rebels and The Mandalorian. But, unlike Star Trek, the Star Wars universe has set some expectations on what constitutes a Star Wars story. Elements like The Force, Rebellions, Empires, and Bounty Hunters. The question that I ended up with was, how far can the universe stray from the core elements before it stops feeling like Star Wars? And to which Siskoid from Gimme That Star Trek and other shows on this network said, Good question. The fact that it started as a film rather than a TV series makes a big difference. Trek and Doctor Who had, and still have, the luxury of breaking their own rules, doing one-offs that are not specifically in line with their root philosophies as set down in their series Bibles. In fact, a lot of what we consider those root philosophies evolved over time, not just as their creator's original intent but in the accumulation of stories. When Trek goes to movies, that's when people scream, that's not Trek, even though there are plenty of episodes across all series that, if they were a movie, i.e. the only Trek you'd get for that year or for three years, you'd scream, that's not Trek. So it seems true of Star Wars as well. The TV series can have fun building the world, but the movies are held to a different standard. Get off track from the elements in the original trilogy and fans scream, that's not Star Wars. And that's an attitude built up by the three trilogies telling variations of the same story and tropes over and over, to the point of being a big problem in the Disney cycle. Either it's a world, or it's one single story. If it's a world, you can do anything in that world. If it's a story, then it has a definite ending. The MCU is a world. Is Middle-Earth? Was Middle-Earth always just the story of the One Ring, from Bilbo to Frodo? If so, it's over, and fans would not accept movies set in that world but not innate to those specific books, even if Tolkien wrote plenty of other tales to build up that world. We'll see with the Amazon series if and when it comes to pass, and then again, it may be the case of Mandalorian. An episodic series can do things that movies can't. The future of Star Wars may well be on Disney+, Plus, where the stakes are seemingly lower, fans are more patient, and lesser stars can be used who don't have the same baggage that Luke, Han, and Leia had. Then again, Mando is filled with the usual Star Wars tropes. A bounty hunter, the Force, the dregs of the Empire, a desert planet. What happens when they make a show that's clearly in the galaxy far, far away, but doesn't really feature any of the cliches of Star Wars? Will there be an outcry then? We'll see. And Mike Deans responded to Siskoid's comment, I never really thought about Star Wars that way, but I hope it turns out to be a world, or in this case, a galaxy. 
There are so many stories you could tell with all of the people in that faraway galaxy. Bring on the horror Star Wars story, the noir Star Wars, the period piece Star Wars with butlers. Okay, I got a little carried away with that last one. And joking aside, I would love to see Star Wars stories from different points of view. Uh, So yeah, obviously, I mean, this is something that has been... I've been thinking about this for a long time. It's been occupying a good chunk of my mental real estate. And maybe it's because I don't know what the answer is, or I suspect the answer is not the answer that I want. Um, Because maybe it is just a story. I I keep on thinking of things to refute that and and bumping into obstacles. Um, But I don't like that idea. I like the idea that you can go anywhere and tell any kind of story in a world this big with this many different archetypes and, and features that you know, yeah. but I, but I don't know. I mean, it's it depends. I mean, what Mike was asking for a noir a noir Star Wars story, a horror Star Wars story, would fans accept that? Uh, like, I mean, if it, just because it's you know it has Wookies and Trandoshans and starships, would they accept you know a, a a a saw kind of serial killer splatter porn type of Star Wars movie, even if it was really really well made? Um, would the, I mean, the, for, forgetting the one thing that the corporations would never make that because they need to make so much money for these properties, that might be a limiting factor in how outside the box they're ever willing to go, and that could kneecap the any any possible chance or proof that you could get that these things can do different uh, things. But maybe on the smaller screen, that is the way that you can break away from. Maybe the Disney Plus is the only chance we'll get to see non space fantasy adventure trope filled uh, Star Wars stories I don't know but I, I think I definitely think there are ways of telling stories that are not a regurgitation and a recycling of the first trilogy or even the prequels or something like that within this world and you can do that on screen I look to one of my favorite Star Wars stories from the old expanded universe was uh, in the early or mid 90s the comic book series Tales of the Jedi um, and the first two issues of that was a story arc called The Beast Wars of Onderon. And I covered this on my old Star Wars podcast, Dead Buff and Spies, with um, Kyle Benning uh, long ago. And we had hoped to continue with that and never got around to it. Maybe someday. I keep saying that. Maybe someday. Um, but this was a story that had young Jedi apprentices going on a mission to try and, and, and settle this dispute between these, this, you know, warring factions between the, the, this home civilization and this group of rebellious traitors on one of the planet's moons, uh, and the Jedi were supposed to broker this peace or settle it, and kind of like end it, um, but while they're there, they find out there's more to it, and maybe the group that they thought were the good guys weren't really the good guys because their queen was this dark side witch, uh, and there was actually like this sort of, um, you know, uh, star-crossed a love story between you know the princess and and the leader of the the rebellious tribe that they thought were terrorists, um, and that type of thing has classical elements that are similar to the the ancient you know literary tropes and and film tropes that we're used to. It does have two different warring factions, one in power, one seen as rebels. But the twist is that you, at first you think one is the good guy, one is the bad guy, and then it flips it. You got an evil witch, so there's that fantasy character. You have the young heroes, um, but, but I mean in this case there isn't the necessarily the the rejection of the hero's journey. They're sent there. This is their test. Um, but are they smart enough to see that they're being lied to and deceived? 
Um, and that type of thing, I think, would make for a great movie that has nothing to do with the Skywalker saga. It's original characters. It's not the Empire. It's not the Rebellion. But you do have Jedi, and you have starships, and you have droids, and you have two warring factions. I think those are the things that a Star Wars movie, to really to really sell that feel, needs. It needs to have not just a personal story, but some type of conflict that is bigger. That's why it's Star Wars. That's why it's not just a revenge drama. It's it's Star Wars. You need big stakes, planetary or galactic stakes. So you need different sides, but at the heart of it you get the who is the human face of one side and what is his or her uh, role in fighting for one side and helping one side defeat the other. Uh, and then you've got the accoutrement, the ships, the lightsabers, the other things that make it feel like Star Wars. But that story, you know, everything looked different because it was set 5,000 years ago. But I would love to see something like that translated to a movie or something along those lines. Um, even The Phantom Menace, which has all the problems, and I'm, I'm not reneging on any of the things that I told Omar and saying that Phantom Menace is a good movie because I don't think it is. It is boring and it is hard to look at because of the CGI and some of those problems and how just stilted and bloodless it seems. But I maintain that it's my favorite of the prequels because the story itself, if you break down the skeleton, the Jedi are sent to to end this blockade where an evil force is trying to take over and dominate one planet. And the Jedi go there and they help the Queen escape capture. And there's these side plots and side adventures, but eventually they have to go back. When when the Senate and the government won't help them, the Jedi and this queen go back to her planet so that she can lead the uprising, and they all work together to fight back this conquering army. That feels like a great Star Wars story and a great Star Wars premise. It didn't look necessarily like Star Wars because of the design of the ships and how, like, the, the, the CGI... And it didn't sound like Star Wars because of the clunkiness of the dialogue and how generic it was. But that story, to me, still felt enough like Star Wars in its bones. It had those elements. And I think you can do new things like that. So, I mean, those are just two examples that are not carbon copies of the story of A New Hope, or in this case, from the adventures of Luke Skywalker, as the novelization that John and I covered. Um, those are original tales with original plots that feel very similar because they, you know, they they fall in line with the 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 literary elements and the archetypes that we are familiar with and we recognize. Um, Star Wars doesn't have to be wholly original or wholly unique. It's never been that. It was always, you know, a, a Frankenstein of different genres and elements that everybody was familiar with. That's why people liked it. But yeah, I, I don't think I don't think you can go so far away as to do Breaking Bad in in the Star Wars galaxy. So anyway, does that answer the question of is it one story or is it an entire world? I don't know. I'm gonna keep on asking that question and keep on thinking about it. Um, I hope future movies or future stories prove that it can be open, that you can always do more. Uh, but we shall see. Um, anyway, uh, the previous episode, we also got comments from John Schaefer Hames, David A. Gutierrez, Brian Hughes, Gene Hendricks, Santaran, Tim Price, and Mark Baker Wright, who said he couldn't waste his time with this podcast anymore and he was unsubscribing to the show. 
pour. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. If you like this show or other shows on the Fire and Water Network, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening, and may the 4th be with you.